Welcome to the All Things to All People podcast. This is Michael Burns. This is the first episode. Today, we're going to be focusing on an introduction to my book, All Things to All People, The Power of Cultural Humility. So let's get going. Good morning. As I said, this is Michael Burns, and this is, hey, it's my uh, first episode of the podcast, and let me explain a little bit about what I'm going to be doing, because I think this is not going to be uh, a typical or normal type podcast. Uh, My main function is as a biblical teacher. and uh, I write a fair amount of books as well um, as really an outlet and a, a further venue uh, context, if you will, for uh, biblical teaching. Uh, and so uh, over time, as I travel around and I teach in other churches and go places, uh, I have a lot of people ask me about audiobooks and you know, are those available? And and uh, for some of them, they are. For some of them, they are not yet. And so uh, we had talked about working on those uh, and and getting the audio books, especially for my uh, newer books, out. Uh, but at the same time, I had a lot of people talking to me, and we'd been kicking around the idea of different iterations and, and different looks for a podcast and, and different ideas there. And so I started to kind of put those two ideas together and said, let's do a, a podcast that's kind of half podcast and half audiobook. And so uh, we're going to try it and see how it goes. Uh, as we begin here, I want to give a shout out to uh, my friend Erin Miner, she put together uh, the cool beat, which you'll hear kind of at the uh, beginning and end of the podcast, kind of our, our theme song. She made the original beat, so I appreciate that. So what I'm going to do here is uh, this will be, at this point, a weekly podcast. And, and this thing will definitely, I, I think, evolve as we go and we'll, we'll add to it and uh, bring in some new elements. I may occasionally have um, some guests and uh, discuss what we're doing uh, that week with them. Uh, But for the most part, uh, what I'm going to try to do is, uh, again, here's the half audio book part. I'm going to read through um, a portion, uh, probably a chapter, an episode, each week and we'll go through that chapter and I will stop every now and then and maybe talk, uh, uh, add something, add a thought that comes to mind, or, uh, maybe I won't, <laughs> we'll just, you know, maybe I'll go long stretches where I, I just read it and, uh, we'll go from there. And so today we're going to start with all things to all people. Uh, that's one of my most recent, book releases and uh, we're going to go through the introduction of that book today and then um, once we're done with this book there are 26 chapters so it'll take a little while to get through this book 
Uh, we'll jump in uh, to my next book, and we'll decide along the way which of those books uh, that's going to be. Uh, at this point, I have um, 12 books that I have uh, written, um, and I'm almost done with the 13th, which by the time we're done uh, going through the All Things to All People book on, on this podcast, uh, that book will uh, surely be done and out. And so who knows, that may be the next one that, we, uh, that I uh, read and examine. Um, but we'll, we'll start here uh, with, as I said, All Things to All People. And we may break in occasionally. I've had people ask me about, hey, could you talk about how you go about writing books? And for some reason, uh, people are curious about that. I can guarantee you it's not the most exciting thing uh, in the world. Uh, but I may take an episode where, we, uh, where I talk about that and um, may have a, a guest on uh, that episode just so that it's not quite so boring. Um, but as I said, we'll have some guests from time to time just to, you know, friends in the neighborhood, like Mr. Rogers used to have friends in the neighborhood uh, pop in. We will do that as well. So without further ado, let me uh, stop babbling here and we'll get into uh, the all things to all people introduction. I lay deep asleep in my bed exhausted after another long day of teaching high school history and coaching the boys' basketball team. I had finally succumbed to my fatigue and surrendered to the day just before midnight. My wife was laboring on an overnight shift at the hospital in her role as a registered nurse. Just short of 4 a.m., I was shaken from my slumber by a noise. Dazed and a bit startled, I tried to connect what I was hearing with something that I could recognize or categorize. It took but a few seconds to realize that it was my older son stumbling up the stairs into our bedroom. I could only barely make out his silhouette as he tottered past the window. <clears throat> as he staggered out toward the bed, I heard him weakly force out a, Dad! The ghostly timber of his utterance, along with his gait, which resembled more that of a drunken man walking through wet cement than an eight-year-old boy, came together on my parent radar in an instant. I sprang straight up in the middle of the bed to a sitting position with my legs still under the covers. At the same time, I mustered all the force I could and attempted to shout out, Don't you dare! But it was too late. He was positioned at the foot of the bed, aiming straight at me. I thought I might be able to grab him and stop the assault that was about to be unleashed, but my reflexes were slowed at that time of the morning, and he transitioned from the slow stagger to a lightning-quick cannon as the projectile vomiting began to stream at me like angry water that had been penned up in a dormant fire hose for far too long. It went all over the bed, the sheets, the pillows, and of course, me. Did I mention that it was not even four in the morning yet? I spent the rest of the morning cleaning and getting him settled back in bed, complete with a bucket next to him, as well as cleaning myself up, changing all the bedding, and starting an unexpected load of laundry. Just a few days later, I was hurrying to get ready to leave for school. 
That morning, I had the task of getting our then 18-month-old out of his crib and dressed and ready to go to daycare. On occasion, my wife would leave a special cookie for him on the dresser in his room and tell him that if he went to sleep quickly, he could have the cookie when he woke. Now, we were not above bribery. When I opened the door to his room, I was irritated to see that he had apparently played the role of expert cat burglar in the night and somehow gotten a hold of the cookie. Not only that, but he made a mess of it. And the chocolate from the chips in the cookie was smeared everywhere. A bit frustrated by this new inconvenience to my morning, I momentarily wondered how much, how that much chocolate could have been in one cookie. You may already see where this is going, but as I neared his crib, I began to be overtaken by the sharp odor of what was clearly not the aroma of chocolate. It was then that I noticed that this special brownish substance was smeared on several of the slats of his crib. Further investigation of the wall next to his crib revealed something of a work of art that could rival some of the masterpieces of the great Impressionists. Another glance down at my grinning son, and I now saw the full glory of his foray into the world of art. His organic brown paint had leaked out of his diaper and had not just worked on the wall, he had not just worked on the wall, but perhaps his magnum opus of finger painting was all over the sheets of his crib. Another memorable morning, another impromptu hosing off, an unscheduled load of laundry. Now, let me just break in here for a moment and say all of that really happened, and I can remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, back to the reading. If someone had come to my bright-eyed, the world is my oyster, 15-year-old self, and told me that I would willingly sign up for and continue to be part of projectile vomiting and scat art, I would have been certain that this person had fallen violently off several rockers, not just their own. There's no way I would have agreed to such a life. What could possibly make someone buy into such a thing? Although your first suspicion might be mental disease, that's not the case. In fact, millions of rational and well-functioning adults around the world submit to such indignities every day and do so willingly. The reason is simple. Your why becomes bigger than your what. Why would you allow such things to repeatedly happen? Because you meet these little humans, and without fully understanding it, you love them more than you could ever explain. You're willing to lay your life down for them. That is your why. And that why becomes far greater than heat-seeking vomit or little pants full of human mud could ever be. You are willing to deal with an unbelievable and unfathomable amount of what's because the why has become so overwhelming. In this book, we're going to talk about some very big what's. If our why is not established and maintained as far bigger than our what's, then we will fail at perhaps the greatest and most important task that God has ever entrusted to his people. What are these what's? And what is our why? Well, we'll get to that in due course. But have you ever traveled outside of your home country? I'm not talking about a few days at some resort in a country that caters to foreign visitors and seeks to make them feel at home 
while enjoying a dash of luxury and being spoiled. Now, have you ever spent several weeks in a country that was far away and totally different from your home? Imagine doing that for several months. It can be fun, exhilarating, and exciting, but it also comes with numerous challenges. Traveling far away from home is difficult, especially for an extended time. Various researchers have demonstrated that spending time in a new environment is quantifiably taxing both mentally and physically. It wears you down and tires you out because your system is constantly under stress. Even if you're having a great time, enjoying the food, and adjusting well to a different time zone, being outside a familiar location is exhausting. But if you're enjoying the location, savoring the food, and sleeping sleeping well, what is it that could be so demanding on your system? Believe it or not, it is most likely some level of cultural shock. Culture shock is a very real and challenging thing to overcome. It grinds most people down. When you are immersed in a different culture, there are many elements that demand concentration and a new level of understanding. You can rarely, if ever, put your mind on cruise control and relax. At every turn is something you don't fully understand, something unfamiliar, and you aren't exactly sure how to navigate it. Why are they standing so close to me? Why are they all standing so far apart when far more people could get in there? Why are people lining up like that? That's now how, not how I've ever seen it done before. Why did that airport worker not seem to care about what was right and fair in that situation? What did they mean when they said that? Why did everyone look uncomfortable when I said that? How on earth did anyone find that joke funny? It made no sense at all. Why do they allow that kind of behavior? Why would they dress like that on such a hot day? Does no one seem to care what time it is or respect anyone else's time? Why does everyone seem so uptight about what time it is? Why would they do that? How could they think that way? Why would they believe that? Well, the list is nearly endless. The point is that there is much to learn when entering another culture. There are many things that cause stress because we don't understand and are constantly in fear of making a mistake, offending someone, or just looking clueless. Merely listening attentively and paying careful attention to someone for an extended period of time, something that is often required when you're outside your cultural norm, can by itself be mentally and physically draining. What might seem like an adventure at first quickly becomes less than fun. You start to feel irritated and tense more often. You grow increasingly judgmental of behavior that seems odd and inexplicable. After a while, you can start to long for home. You want to hear familiar music. You want comfort food. You want to be around people who make a little more sense and don't tire you out just being around them. We have a term for that feeling in my country. We call it homesick. What it actually is, though, is culture sick. We want to be home because we want to be surrounded by a culture that's comfortable, that makes sense to us, and that we know how to navigate with little effort or thought. I've traveled extensively outside my own culture in the last decade or two, and I enjoy the adventure and excitement of interacting with other cultures in new parts of the world. But I would be lying if I said it wasn't exhausting at times. I found places that I visit regularly that are still different, but close enough to my cultural comfort zone that they feel pretty comfortable and have become a home away from home. 
But even in those places, after a while, I found myself longing to be back at home, surrounded by what I know best. Those feelings come on even quicker when I'm traveling in a place with cultures that are profoundly different from my own. Learning the customs, picking up on what things mean and what's going on, trying to make sure I don't do something offensive. I love it. But even so, it's taxing. I'll break in here for a moment into the reading and and simply say I've had uh, a number of people ask me uh, about that uh, point of, well, what's the home away from home for you? Where where are those places? Where are your favorite places to visit? And I, I don't want to be too specific here because uh, I don't want to get in trouble with anyone, but I'll, I'll simply uh, say probably at this point it, it wouldn't be would not be a big surprise to anyone who knows me uh, that well uh, to say that uh, a place that's really become a home away from home for me uh, would definitely be the country of, of South Africa. When we're uh, over in Africa or even Southern Africa, uh, limited to that region, um, I love all the places there. But definitely uh, if I'm in another country and I return back to South Africa, uh, it, it feels very much uh, like I'm at home at this point, and uh, it, it's it's one of my favorite countries to visit. So there you go. Uh, let's get back to the reading. I've seen many people move to other countries to share the gospel and advance the mission of the kingdom, and they've been used by God in amazing ways. But most of them that I've talked to have found it difficult and stressful to live in a place where they are surrounded constantly by a culture foreign to their own. The majority of those faithful souls eventually make their way back to their home culture at some point, as though a powerful magnet were pulling them back to the land of familiarity. Some stick it out and begin to embrace a new culture as their own, but for most, they enjoy their time away, but then are thrilled to be back home. My point here is not to discourage anyone from traveling or moving to another country to minister. Those are amazing opportunities that I would wholeheartedly encourage you to embrace if God calls you to such adventures and opens the doors for you. Rather, I want you to think about how demanding it can be to be immersed in another culture. Now imagine what it would feel like if you were part of a church family in your own city where the default culture was not your own. How exhausting would that become over time? So let's continue reading here. We're still in the introduction of all things to all people, uh, working our way through the idea of cultural humility and laying out uh, some of the basic parameters as we get into the topic in the book of all things to all people. So let's pick back up with the reading here. Cross-cultural encounters are difficult. There's really no way around that. And if we are truly embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, our lives will be cross-cultural affairs. They just will. 
In this book, I'll make the case that the gospel itself involves the call to gather up people under the rule of Jesus, the King, from every people group and culture. We've been given the mission to gather the nations into one family, and that means that our life in Christ will be intercultural. I'll also make the case that it's far too easy for multiracial churches to slip into utilizing one culture as its default, making it quite comfortable and homey for one group, but a constant grind and effort for all the others. Being a truly multicultural church brings challenges. That's what this book is about. How do we navigate those challenges? Can you imagine a church that never taught about biblical manhood or womanhood? How about a church that never mentioned, taught, or gave any attention to the topic of marriage? A church that held no marriage retreats, never did pre-marriage counseling, never mentioned the subject of marriage or married life from the pulpit, and skipped over biblical passages focused on marriage or applied them to other topics. What would the state of marriages in that church be? I think it's safe to say it would be abysmal. But what about the body of Christ? Which should be full of people from varying backgrounds, perspectives, ethnic groups, nations, and cultures? In your time as a Christian, how many sermons or teaching days have you heard that walk the church through the challenges of cross-cultural living or intercultural communication? How many lessons have focused on the many scriptural passages that teach cross-cultural competency and how to navigate these difficult issues within the body? The more diverse a group is, the more difficult it will be to find unity and harmony. That is as true in Christ as anywhere else. It would be easier to join a church that is culturally homogenous, where everyone's culture was strikingly like your own. That's far more comfortable. Therefore, there will be a consistent and strong pull on a diverse church to break into more comfortable groups of like-minded folks. It's simply naive to claim anything other than that. And this is where it gets serious. Throughout recent history, at least in my country, the United States of America, there have been many attempts at multiracial and diverse churches. Many of those groups have prospered and multiplied quickly. At least they did so for a time. They heard the call of Christ to gather the nations and they answered it. But history also shows that most of those groups crumbled within a generation or two and either disappeared or went back to segregated groups. There were brief moments of multiracial churches in the 1700s in the United States that included African-American preachers, such as the Baptist William Limon and the Methodist Henry Evans. But most of the diverse congregations were limited to blacks and poor whites and were still typically dominated culturally by whites. But these efforts quickly faded by the Civil War, and there's little to no evidence that they extended beyond those two racial groups. Following the Civil War, there was a brief appearance of interracial churches, but most whites found that unacceptable, and even those who did not rarely fully accepted their black co-members as true equals. These post-war groups eventually separated the races in all areas of church life, including seating, and it wasn't long before most parted ways altogether. This phenomenon really began in 1787 when Richard Allen and Absalom Jones left the Methodist Episcopal Church and eventually would eventually form the African Methodist Episcopal Church, or the AME. But the process of interracial groups splitting into separate organizations continued through the post-Civil War generation. 
The, the Congregationalists were the last major group to resist that split, but they eventually gave in and split in the 1880s. In the early 1880s, a movement in the Midwest of the United States called the Evening Light Saints began in earnest with a heart toward gathering the nations into one multi-ethnic community. This movement would eventually come to be known as the Church of God, and they embraced a non-denominational instinct, though they would eventually become a denomination. Their early leader was a white minister named Daniel Warner. He formed a powerful partnership with AMA preacher Julia Foote. This movement was deeply committed to racial reconciliation and was so countercultural that they faced intense opposition, including one of their camp meetings in Alabama being dynamited in the late 1890s. Now, I got to break in right here and say, uh, that's serious. Uh, it's one thing to oppose a group, um, you know, maybe even uh, protest them or throw some bottles or fruit or something through the window. But when you're throwing dynamite, um, wow, that that is uh, intense. But let's get back to the reading here. In the early 1880s, a movement of the Midwest, you know what? I already read that part. That's what happens when you look away from what you're reading and you start to talk. And uh, then you go back and didn't put your finger in place of where you were. So let's actually pick up now where I left off. Uh, we left off at the uh, dynamite. That's right. Um, following Warner's death, other Church of God preachers began to back off the message of racial and cultural solidarity, especially in areas of evangelism, fellowship, and marriage. By 1909, congregations in Pittsburgh and New York split racially, and most of their churches soon followed suit. To this day, the Church of God can still claim to be more diverse than most denominations, but it's largely a false diversity as most of its congregations are segregated into one race or another. In 1906 in Los Angeles, what would come to be known as the Azusa Street Revival, began as a gathering of the nations and would develop into the Azusa Street Apostolic Faith Mission. The leader of this multiracial group was a black preacher, William Seymour, although they were deeply committed to full racial inclusion and reconciliation. Once the excitement of the initial revival meeting wore off, they eventually slouched back towards segregated worship. The same could be said of the Assemblies of God, which started as a cross-racial gathering around the turn of the century, but by 1920 saw most of their Hispanic congregations leave to start their own groups. They, too, would fall back into racial homogeneity for the most part, as would almost every other group in the first three centuries of American history. I think this largely has to do with the dynamics of culture. If we do not understand cross-cultural dynamics and we ignore what the Bible has to teach us about this topic, we will be doomed to repeat history. The early church thrived in diversity for hundreds of years, and I believe it's because they paid careful attention to the biblical teaching on cultural competency. In short, they took seriously the task of being all things to all people. Pious-sounding Christians may say, we don't need to worry about culture, or that's a worldly topic being smuggled into the church. That couldn't be further from the truth. Culture is a God-given human trait, and we all bring our own with us. 
To ignore the power of culture is to invite the seeds of division into our fellowship. Coming to Christ does not take away your culture any more than coming to Christ takes away your individual personality. It's still there, and it can be honed to help bring unity, or if left untouched, can cause much irritation and conflict. My hope is that in reading this book, we will all agree that the gospel mission is to gather the nations together as one people. Once we grasp that, we can turn our attention to the task of being all things to all people. If we don't get the mission right, we will fail to become what God desires his family to be. And if we don't get the task right, we'll squander and splinter the mission that God has given us. Let me be clear. There's nothing in this book about being culturally hip, cool, or relevant. That's not what we're talking about. In many ways, let me just stop there and say uh, that's largely because that's not what cultural humility is about, but also I don't really know what it takes to be relevant, cool, and hip. So even if I wanted to, I wouldn't be able to write to write about it. Back to the reading. In many ways, we are moving in the opposite direction. Typically, those who are obsessed with being relevant to the culture are picking one segment or target audience and attempting to be relevant within the context of that microculture. Valuing someone's culture, recognizing its dignity, and at times participating in it for the purpose of including all people in worship of God has nothing to do with being cool. The work of being all things to all people and truly being the diverse group that God desires to have as his family is full of exceedingly difficult what's, more than we can list and discuss here. There is much that can divide and separate us. There's much that can stress us out and cause us to want to give up and go back to the far easier life of being around people more like us. The what's are numerous and daunting. As we'll see, being all things to all people is our what. But it is God's call for his people to gather the nations as the fulfillment of his most ancient promises that will serve as our why. It is this mission to gather the nations and the task of making the church all things to all people that are not only our why and what's, but will be the focus of this book, All Things to All People. Let's jump back into the reading, and we're going to try to finish up the introduction today here. As we approach these topics, we need to be realistic. They can easily cause passions to boil. If we're to be victorious in Christ, it is vital to work together as a community. Being a lone wolf leaves one vulnerable to becoming a victim of deep-seated hurts and bitterness. When we dive into these waters together, we can help keep one another afloat and throw a life preserver if we see someone drowning. For this to work, individuals must not become obsessed with issues of race and culture. The goal is for an entire church community to work together as family to grow in their humility and love for one another. That will take all parts of the body pitching in and using their strengths. 
Leaders will need the help of other members to see their blind spots. The spiritually young will need wiser and more mature Christians to navigate them through the choppy waters of being all things to all people. Those with knowledge and the subjects addressed in this book will need the fresh eyes of those who are encountering these concepts for the first time. Those who can easily become overzealous will need the steady hand at the wheel of a seasoned mentor. In other words, we need each other. To be a Christian is to bond with people who are not like us and to become family. This will take all of us working together in love and humility to continue to be something that truly stands out in the world. I don't know about you, but I remember things like I used to. I don't remember. See, I, I, I'm losing my memory so much that I'm reading sentences wrong. I don't remember things like I used to. If someone tells me their phone number and I can't immediately write it down or enter it into my phone, I have to repeat it in my head 50 times in order to recall it when I need it. Or someone will tell me their name and five seconds later, before we even finish the conversation, I've already forgotten it. I often need to hear someone's name several times before finally committing it to the storehouses of my memory. Throughout this book, you'll see things repeated, topics restated in slightly different ways, and areas returned to multiple times from different angles. That's not a mistake. It's designed to help us become familiar with the unfamiliar and to cement some of the ideas and concepts from this book into our minds so that we'll be able to recall and use the information when needed. Additionally, in a companion workbook, A Crown That Will Last, you will find discussion questions and activities for each chapter to help reinforce and facilitate practical applications of the material uh, in, the, in the chapter. These activities are designed for groups and churches to go further in their understanding and begin to weave the concepts of cultural humility into their community life. Finally, before moving on, I want to finish the introduction with some important definitions that will help ensure that we are operating with the same word meanings. And I'll just go ahead and read these definitions that finish out the chapter. Culture, a group of people who share a similar learned set of customs, beliefs, values, arts, and social institutions, social practices, assumptions, traditions, and way of thinking. Ethnocentrism, evaluating and judging other cultures according to preconceptions and assumptions that the standards and norms of one's own ethnic group are ideal and superior. Bias is prejudice in favor of or against a person, group, or thing, typically in an unfair manner. Bigotry is the intolerance of a group, creed, opinion, belief, lifestyle, or worldview other than one's own. Whereas prejudice is a feeling, bigotry is putting that feeling into action. Cultural competency is the ability to interact humbly, intelligently, and effectively with people of cultures other than one's own, showing respect and appropriate responsiveness to their cultural practices and needs. Discrimination is the unjust or prejudicial treatment of differing categories of people's people or things. Ethnicity, belonging to a social group that shares a common language, religion, nation, or culture. Ethos is the characteristic culture and spirit of a group community that is demonstrated in their beliefs, actions, and aspirations. Race, a group of persons related by common descent or heredity. The traditional division of humanity, the most common and broad being the Caucasian, Mongoloid, and Negroid groups, 
categorized by alleged distinctive physical or biological characteristics. Racism is a system of domination or oppression of one ethnic or racial group over another based on differences that are believed to be hereditary and unchangeable. For racism to exist, a group must have the power to enforce their dominance through either overt or hidden means. Prejudice is a negative or unfavorable opinion or feeling formed about another based on preconceived notions rather than fact, thought, or reason. Well, that wraps up uh, the first episode of the All Things to All People podcast. Uh, I hope you uh, enjoyed it, got something out of it. And uh, we will see you next time where we will pick up in chapter one of all things uh, to all people and talk about the purpose being image bearers. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.